Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Teaching Lab. I am your host, Angela Bauer. Each week, I will keep you current on the latest findings regarding teaching and learning innovations that foster deep learning and inclusivity in your classrooms. Whether you are currently a busy STEM professor or an aspiring academic, this convenient on-the-go professional development podcast promises to keep you at the top of your teaching game. Hello everyone, welcome to our first episode of The Teaching Lab. I'm really excited to introduce to you today our very first guest. His name is Dr. Brett Woods, and he is currently an Associate Professor of Biology and Director of Health Professions Advising at High Point University in North Carolina. Prior to coming to High Point University, he spent eight years at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater campus. And at Whitewater, he spent a significant amount of time conducting work to promote an inclusive environment within the natural science disciplines and enhancing the outcomes of his underrepresented students who were majoring in the sciences. And for this work, he was awarded in 2013 the University of Wisconsin Systems Diversity Award for his NSF-funded efforts. That work, uh, which was published recently in the Journal of STEM Education, Innovation and Research, is what we're going to be talking about today. So welcome to the Teaching Lab, Dr. Woods. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I am hoping that we can begin uh, before we talk about this specific work that you did at Whitewater, if you could provide us with a little bit of institutional context um, in terms of why it was necessary to conduct the inclusivity work. Well, first of all, it's a subject that's very important to me. I feel like for a lot of students, they do not feel like they belong. They are dealing with issues that really have nothing to do with academics, but is having an impact on their performance in academics. And part of that is just, you know, how, how does it feel to be you know, for example, the only black person in the classroom. I remember times when there were issues associated with race and being the only black person in the classroom. And if the, if the, if the race issue was related to African-Americans, for example, whether or not the entire class did or not, it felt like everyone turned their head and looked at me as if I was going to be the representative for an entire group of people. And so what we found was that in many instances, when a student did not perform well in class, it wasn't because they were incapable of doing well. It was because they were dealing with other issues. So we tried to come up with a program that would not only address these sort of non-academic issues, but also address some of the academic topics that could improve their chance in STEM. Can you talk in more detail about some of the problems that either you encountered as a member of an underrepresented group in the sciences when you were a student, or that you have observed in some of the students that you've mentored over the years? A very common problem among students, especially underrepresented minority students, is a feeling that they don't belong. So they have an issue where they come to school for the first time, they're away from home, and they have um, really sort of an imposter syndrome. Like they don't, they, they're not going to do well, and they're almost waiting for someone to confirm their belief that they're not going to be successful. And one of the things that happens is when a student takes a class and they get their first grade, if their first grade is not an A, or in, in many cases not even a B, they take that as confirmation that they don't belong in the class. And they often isolate themselves. They will not talk to the professor. 
they will often not talk to other students because they believe that other students are doing well, even though they may not be, and that they're the only ones with problems. And so one of the things that we did in the program is give the students the opportunity to learn that what they're going through is common and normal. And so that when they get their first exam and it doesn't go as well as that they had hoped, it doesn't destroy them. And as a matter of fact, they, they expect it. And we've had many students in the past who are like, okay, they told me this was going to happen. And so when this happens, what am I supposed to do? And, and for us, that's when the successes come in because we tell them that they're going to have some um, obstacles. And when those obstacles come, who should they talk to? And so we have a lot of our students in our program talking to professors, more so than other students in the class. The other issue, I would say we have a lot of students that have issues specific to maybe their culture, specific to their expectations from their family. Um, and we have had some students that would miss class because they were called home to babysit, for example. It shouldn't be surprising that a student won't do as well if they're missing class. And so we have the opportunity to talk about that and in some cases, you know, talk about how to navigate family issues as well as academic issues. And for some students, that's extremely helpful. So you've told us about some of the common problems that you have witnessed your underrepresented students encountering when you were at University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Um, and in response to that, in an effort to enhance underrepresented student outcomes, you developed something that you refer to as the STEM boot camp program. And of course, this is what you have described in your recent publication in the Journal of STEM Education, Innovation, and Research. So. Can you tell us a bit about the structure of the STEM boot camp program? And then from there, I'd like to hear about the results. Uh, my colleague and I, uh, Dr. Annika Lisberg, who is uh, also author of that publication um, that you just mentioned. First of all, we had to deal with a problem. And our problem was that underrepresented minorities were, were being recruited at a high level at UW-Whitewater. As a matter of fact, we had in many situations. We have more minor, underrepresented minority students in sciences than other institutions in the, in the system and in the state. And yet, when you looked at those students that were graduating, these students were not graduating. And so we looked at the data and we determined that most of the underrepresented minority students that were not making it, um, they weren't making it because they weren't passing the, the initial courses the introductory biology courses, the introductory chemistry courses, the introductory math courses. And so we decided to design a program that was going to really focus on getting students through their first year of core courses. We also felt strongly that uh, when we looked at the grades or the, for example, the SAT and the ACT scores of these students coming in, they weren't below average. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they were above average. So they weren't coming to the institution unprepared. But yet, in this first year, something was happening to prevent them from get, to get through. So we designed a two-week program that was focused on skills. Skills in reading, skills in taking notes, skills in terms of communicating with your professors. We designed a program that allowed students to get to know each other um, and create community. We believed that community was going to be the best way to counteract the feelings of isolation. And we also were fortunate to get uh, professors, real professors that they were going to have, give us mock lectures during the program. So many of our students, before they even took their first class at Whitewater, had met professors and had the opportunity 
to interact with them in such a way that it was less scary their first day of class. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, their first day of class, unlike other freshmen, they knew where everything was. Um, and so a lot of that transition that occurs with, with freshmen just did not occur with them. So they felt more comfortable um, at day one. So when you designed this program, were you placing more or less emphasis on, on some of the aspects of the program that addressed sort of the emotional components or affective components of learning? Because I'm hearing a couple of different things that you're, you're taking steps to promote a, a sense of community, uh, perhaps promote a growth mindset, uh, but you're also providing them with opportunities to hone their academic skills with note taking and, and so forth. Were they sort of equally emphasized uh, addressing these two different domains of learning, the cognitive and the affective? Did, did you get the sense that any one was more important than the other? Um, the reason I ask is because you mentioned the fact that these students were coming in with ACT or SAT scores that were, were average and sometimes above average, which would then, perhaps one could argue, they weren't necessarily entering your institution with any sort of deficit in their academic training or, or background. Um, I'm just curious, you know, what your gut was, maybe mm -hmm. what you observed. What, was either one of these more important? Was one emphasized more than the other? I think in terms of our program, we emphasize uh, the skills necessary to be successful in the classroom. It was, it was almost more like two weeks of a mock classroom setting. So let's, it's almost like we told the students, we're going to pretend that we're in college for two weeks and we're going to go through the process of college. You're going to see lectures, you're going to take notes, you're going to have exams, you're going to have assignments, you're going to have projects, you're going to have group projects, and you're going to learn how to write and actually write uh, a paper. And throughout this process, we are going to look at the pitfalls of every step. On one hand, we emphasize the academic side, but on the other hand, as we were going through the academic side, we were emphasizing the, the mindset side. We were mm -hmm. emphasizing the emotional side. So for example, we would give them a, a lecture. We would have a professor come in and give a lecture. And then we would give an, them an exam on that lecture. And so not only would we talk about their, the results of how they did on the exam, but we would talk about how do they feel about the exam. What did it feel like when you missed a question? Or what did it, how did that professor, how did you like that professor? Did you feel more comfortable um, with this professor? And since we had so many different professors, we could talk about styles. So for example, one student might say, well, I like Professor A better than Professor B. And then we would talk about why is that the case? And then if you had a professor in this example, in this boot camp that you didn't like as much as others, then we would, we would uh, bridge that into a conversation about, okay, you're going to take a class in which you have a professor you don't like. What are you going to do about it? Because you still need to get a good grade, even though you may not like the style of that particular professor. And so then, so a lot of these academic activities that we did would bridge into the emotional, psychological aspects of it. I don't know if we really emphasized or prioritized one or the other. I feel like they went hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And this two weeks was the opportunity for students and, and us to really talk it out without any fear of, of uh, ramifications. Mm -hmm. You know, you did poorly on this exam, but it's not affecting your GPA because we haven't started school yet. So let's talk about why you did poorly on this exam and what could you do if this was the real thing, what would you do? So you ran this two-week STEM boot camp 
And about how many students did you have enrolled? We probably averaged about 10 students. I mean, sometimes we had more than 10 mm -hmm. students. Uh, sometimes we had less. But uh, I believe strongly that, it, that no matter what, we always, we were limited by funds. So there's only so many students that we can have. Mm -hmm. And so in, in general, I think we were maxed out at uh, 13 students from a financial standpoint. How many years did you run the boot camp? Um, I think the first year was 2012. <laughs> Tell us what happened then. So these students participated in this two-week STEM boot camp prior to matriculating their freshman year. Um, and then you measured a few things, I believe, your, their outcomes in their foundation courses in the sciences. And you also looked at retention. So our, our main goal was retention. We really wanted to make sure that the students that participated in the camp were there in their second year, their sophomore year. And in regards to first year retention, I believe we averaged about 96% uh, retention rates for all the years that we, we um, compiled with this camp. So that, so that was very good. I think one of the things that was very exciting for us in terms of pass rate was that we also had a very high pass rate for first year courses. Sort of a side note, that was something that was very interesting that, that we talked about in the paper, was that not every student passed these introductory courses the first time. But what was amazing, or at least what we thought was amazing, was that every student that took the introductory courses eventually passed the course. And so the persistence that existed with our students was 100%. In many ways, that's sort of a, an understatement in terms of, of, of the paper, because although we're very proud of the retention, what we found is that our students did not give up. And in many ways, I think when it comes to college, when it comes to life, quite frankly, being able to assist or help students to not give up, I think is a, was a very powerful, um, honestly unintended consequence of the camp. We didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we were really excited when we did see that. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's indicative also of a change in their mindset then, you know, moving from a fixed to a growth mindset because they bump up against challenges and they're, they're hanging in there and trying again. That's fantastic. I'm curious if when you ran this program, there was any training of the faculty who were teaching the core courses or the foundation STEM courses uh, in terms of approaches that they could use to promote a more inclusive classroom environment. Was there any special training for the faculty who were teaching the foundation courses? Or was the intervention that you were conducting exclusively outside of the classroom in terms of the community that you were creating for the boot camp participants? At the time, there was, there was no concurrent assistant with faculty in terms of trying to create a more inclusive classroom. We really were sort of independent of what faculty were doing. We were trying to teach students to be able to face a non-inclusive classroom, quite frankly. Now, since the inception of this camp, we have created um, workshops. We have gone to training on inclusive workshops, both my colleague and I have, and, uh, and it is our intention to provide um, greater amount of, of training for faculty that want to have a more inclusive classroom. And so hopefully, you know, maybe that'll be our next publication. So you're continuing now a similar program at High Point University. What, what are your goals with that program? Well, right now, actually, honestly, right now, our, our goals are to, you know, for lack of a better term, create a McDonald's of inclusive classroom. Our ideal is to franchise the system. And so to get to a place where, 
any university, any institution that wanted to increase inclusiveness in their program, that we would have a product that we could provide them and they could implement on their own campus. We believe strongly that the model that we have created works. And, and one of the reasons why I started it here at High Point University is because I believe the model works. And, and, if it, and if we find the same success here on campus, then we are just one step closer to creating this sort of model that will hopefully be packaged in such a way that other campuses can uh, take advantage of the system. Last couple of questions just about you teaching in general. <laughs> I want to know, what's your biggest aha moment that you've had either in the classroom related to the boot camp? You pick. My best teaching moment is easy. That's easy. Um, and this actually occurred at Whitewater. I still use it as an example. And um, I had a student who was on the verge of flunking an introductory biology class. And this student came to my office requesting help. And unfortunately, it was a little bit late in the semester, so there was only so much they can do in terms of fixing their grade. And we looked at the numbers, and basically, if the student got an A on the final exam, they were going to pass the class. And I'm sure many students have been in this position before, many faculty have had the situation before. And so I challenged the student. The student also had a fixed mindset. Um, they felt very, they were very confident that their brain was incapable of doing well in biology. And so I challenged the student to a very, um, what I think was a brilliant idea. <laughs> but uh, So I challenged the student, I said, this is what I would like you to do. I'm gonna have you create a journal and you're going to study for uh, 30 minutes a day on the material. And you're gonna meet with me once a week to discuss what you studied in the week prior. And, and, and the reason why I wanted the student to make a journal is because I wanted the student to really have sort of accountability for you know, studying for 30 minutes. And I said, if you do this and we get to the final exam and you have done this from this point on, I will give you a bag of candy of your choice. And that is regardless of how you perform on the final exam. So you can get an F on the final exam, you still get your bag of candy. <laughs> and we, we struck a deal and to my surprise, the student did everything that I asked them to do and they turned in their, their uh, records of their study habits. We met weekly. Sometimes the meeting was short because the person didn't really have any questions based on what they read. And sometimes the meeting was long because they didn't understand what they were studying in the week before. So final exam comes and after grading the class results, uh, the student got the second highest grade on the final exam in the class. What a victory. The, there's the funny part to me, and there's the sad part. Uh, the, the funny part and the, the amazing part is, again, going to this concept of mindset. You know, just if you can convince a student that with just a few, you know, tools, a few ideas, just a few, you know, we can get you to a place that you'd be shocked that you can get to mm -hmm. if you can just have a plan. Yeah. Um, the sad part is, um, and maybe also funny as well, to have a student willing to, to do this for a bag of candy, um, <laughs> as opposed to just a, a good grade in, in class. And so, so there's, there's, I, I do think there's something there when we think about the motivation of our students and, and what motivates them. And unfortunately, for many of our students, the grade is not sufficient 
a motivator. <laughs> Maybe the funding that a lot of institutions are putting toward retention efforts then could be better spent just buying bags of candy. That, that's, that's, there, is, there is some real possibility there. <laughs> okay, lastly, I won't say what's your, what was your biggest classroom disaster, but what, what was like your best learning opportunity in the classroom <laughs> that, that you know, helped you grow as a teacher? All of my teaching disasters come in the first year of wherever I've worked. Don't they um, always? <laughs> <laughs> my first year when I was at Bullock College, I have quite a few disaster stories in my first year, whitewater disaster stories. And, uh, and uh, now that I think about it, I don't know if I've had a first disaster year at High Point University. You would know better than I would based on evaluation. <laughs> but um, what I've learned is that communication with students is, is critical. So, for example, I use a program that has students take, um, read, read the textbook and answer questions online, and many of the students do not like it. They do not like it at all. And the first time I presented it to a class, my evalu student evaluations were very low, and the students all in unison said the program that you had us do online was the worst ever. And then after the semester, I analyzed the results of the class GPA, and it was one of my highest class GPAs of any other class. Huh. And so what that told me was the program worked. Right. And, and this is where communication is key. And this is where the difference between disaster and, and a class going well for me is all about communication. So the next time I taught that same class, I had the same program required of the students. Mm -hmm. And I said to the students, you're going to hate this program. Many of you are going to be dis sad and disappointed and maybe even angry that I'm going to assign you all of these um, homework assignments online because of this program. And so the question is, is why am I doing it? Because ever since introducing this program to this class, I have the highest class GPAs I've ever had in the past. Mm -hmm. So if you have an interest of getting a higher grade in this class, Although you will hate this program, you are more likely to get a higher grade with this program than without it. Mm -hmm. And I've never had complaints about it since that. Yeah. And so, and that is, and, and I, I, if I look at all the courses that I have taught over the years, the difference between disaster and not disaster is providing the students with that information, saying, hey, I'm doing this because and if I can get them to buy in to what I'm doing, it always goes well. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I fail to get them to buy in, or if I fail to inform them on why I'm doing what I'm mm -hmm. doing, um, those are the low evaluations. Wow. I had an eerily similar experience when I started flipping the classroom in my endocrinology class. So students really resented the fact that they um, had to do all this studying outside of the classroom prior to coming to class, and then they got to class and they were expected to be active right. and, and learning and um, same thing first semester I taught it that way teaching evals plummeted but the class average was a full letter grade higher than it had ever been and in subsequent semesters I shared that data with them I said you won't like this as much as when I stand up here and entertain you with lecture but nonetheless this is going to enhance your learning and and communicating with that that with them helped my teaching evaluations immensely and, and I wish I wish there was a, a, a greater emphasis on that when it came to evaluating teaching in general. Mm -hmm. Because, be perfectly honest, I can entertain a class. I can, I can make it fun. I can make it enjoyable. I can have students think it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm -hmm. 
but then at the end of the semester, if you were to quiz them, you find that they didn't retain as much. They'll say they love the class, but they didn't retain. So then the question is, did, was I an effective teacher that mm -hmm. semester? Versus if I can make sure that they retain the material and even take it that next step and apply the material, mm -hmm. but a student says that they didn't really have fun or I didn't tell as many jokes as they thought I should have, you know, which is the better example of teaching excellence? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think it's difficult. What I, what I strive for is both. <laughs> I mean, obviously mm -hmm. I hope I can make it fun and they can retain, but I, I do sometimes struggle with that balance between making sure that the student, the consumer, is happy mm -hmm. versus the consumer is being educated properly. So I know now that you are branching out and developing professional development workshops, opportunities for faculty to become more culturally competent, to be more inclusive in how they approach the classroom and mentor students at undergraduate institutions. Can you tell us a little bit about what those workshops are comprised of? Well, the few workshops that we've done so far is that, so recently in High Point University, we had a workshop on fear, students' fear, and that was actually provided by my co-creator, Dr. Annika Lisberg, and she's still currently at Whitewater, and that was very effective. I have done workshops on racial bias and provided faculty with opportunities to really explore their own biases, and because to be perfectly honest, when a, a professor creates a hostile environment for a student, nine times out of ten they're not doing it on purpose and so one of the things that we talk about in these workshops is what are the things that you might be doing because you're because of your biases things that you don't really think about but are coming out automatically and how they may influence or impact a student's comfort level in your course in your classroom and so the only way that i know how to do that is by providing examples providing opportunities to discuss when this happens this is some of the potential responses of your students as a result. So for example, a lot of classes have group projects. What do you do when you ask your students to form groups and you have an individual in the class that for whatever reason, right or wrong, is um, not being invited to join a group? Um, and now throw on the layer that this student is an underrepresented minority. And so that concept of isolation, that, that concept of really feeling out of place has just been highlighted exponentially. And so it's a very uncomfortable place. So you're, as a faculty member, you have just created an environment that is actually quite hostile. But no one would ever accuse you of doing that on purpose or even knowing that you did that. All you really did is, well, I got group projects. Well, everyone has group projects. So one of the things we talk about in workshops is how can we create or still have group projects, but create a, an environment that doesn't isolate someone. And that could be as simple as the, as the professor creating the groups instead of doing it voluntarily, or um, actually challenging the students to invite other students to join their group. And so you make it a process, you, you turn the, act, the group process into an inclusive activity. Oh, I like that last idea. I've never thought of doing that. Unfortunately, if you do not have experience in being an underrepresented minority, you may not understand what a student is going through in your classroom because it is literally off of your radar. I think uh, examples, if you're a professor that likes to call on students to answer questions, I think that can be too much for many students. And, and that could be true 
anywhere. I know for myself, uh, I had a professor that used to call on me on a regular basis in graduate school, and I hated it. And, and every time he did it, a piece of me died <laughs> inside. <laughs> um, and, and, and what was most frustrating about it was because he would often ask me questions that I knew the answer to, but because it, the spotlight was on me, I froze, and I simply could not answer those questions properly. And, and luckily for me, one day I actually had a, a, the courage to ask him, you know, why are you always calling on me? And, uh, and he said, because I knew you knew the answer. And, and so here you have this professor who's doing something for a positive reason and is having a major negative reaction in me. And so one of the things that I, I would challenge many faculty to know that there are unfortunately things that you're doing for positive reasons that are actually having the opposite impact on your students. And, and, and I think those are the most difficult because uh, a lot of times when you talk about race, um, people feel guilty or they don't want to be made to feel guilty. And what I tell faculty that are interested is how can we make your classroom an environment in which everyone has the higher probability of feeling included and feeling comfortable? So this is not about guilt. This is not about um, making anyone feel like they're doing something wrong. It's more along the lines of if you're a faculty member and you're a part of an institution that actually wants to increase diversity, um, wants to increase inclusiveness, then we need to have conversations and discuss how can we make the classroom more inclusive. And the only way we're gonna be able to do that is accept the fact that there might be some activities that we're doing that are not as inclusive as we think they are. Mm -hmm. I do think group activity is an excellent example of how we can isolate students without intending to. I think that how we invite students to come to our office hours is a major issue. So if we stand in front of the classroom and say, you know, you need to come to my office hours because you're not doing well, we have just now highlighted an individual where you've confirmed an individual who doesn't feel like they're doing well to begin with that, okay, the professor just said I'm not doing well. And so now this professor wants me to come to their office to highlight this area that I'm not comfortable with to begin with. <laughs> and so, so, so that's a difficult thing. So one of the things that I've done over the years is come up with a variety of different ways to invite students. I still make announcements in my class, but I also do personal invites. I also invite people for positive reasons. And so one of the things that um, I just recently did in my class is ask students that were willing to hold study groups. And so, but I did that in a way that students that actually didn't know why I was calling students, calling them to me. And so, again, it goes back to this concept of, are you doing things that are going to highlight areas of someone's insecurities? Or are you gonna create an environment that says, you know what, we all have insecurities, let's work on it together. And if you come and talk with me, we're not gonna just put you out there and you know, put a spotlight on you. We're gonna basically say this is a, a community effort, a community issue. And that's another thing. In my classrooms, I also, we do a lot of group activities in my class in the lecture time as well. And so one of the things that we, we do uh, is to, how can students help each other know the material? I really want that in my future to be something that I get better at. Um, I, I don't want the gap between students and myself to be so large that number one, they feel like they can't come talk to me, but I also don't want them to feel like that I'm the only one with information. Mm -hmm. 
And so how can we create a classroom that where students look at each other for assistance and help? And, and again, what's more inclusive than that mm -hmm. than to create an environment where you can feel confident that your neighbor might help you when you're struggling with something? Yeah. And, and I think we often create as faculty competition in our classroom. And I'm not convinced that competition, number one, I'm not convinced competition is necessary. And number two, I'm not convinced that in this particular realm, competition is healthy. You know, I always tell my students, I would love it if everyone got an A. It's never happened, <laughs> but, but I, would, I would love it if everyone got an A, and I would be very proud of that, especially if it was a group effort. So I've heard you speak previously and make a really compelling case for the importance of mentorship for the outcomes of, of students who are from underrepresented groups, and you drew from examples in your own life. I'm wondering if you would comment on that, maybe with respect to your experiences at Berkeley or graduate school in Kansas. So mentorship is critical. I think mentorship, I would not be where I am today without mentorship. My PhD advisor, uh, Dr. Ken Armitage, at the University of Kansas, he's, I still call him to this day. Uh, he's been one of the greatest mentors of my life and a great model for me where the idea of not only can someone mentor you academically, mentor you to get a PhD in, in biology, but it's just a great human being and a person that I'm very happy is still alive um, and, and, and still willing to chat with me about whatever <laughs> on the phone. As an undergraduate, there was just so many things. The only reason why I went to graduate school was because I found a mentor and a professor. And to be perfectly honest, I did not even know how to apply to graduate school. And so this particular professor, Dr. Ned Johnson, who's no longer with us, but um, a, a professor at Berkeley who you know, made it very clear he was going to help me. And what I remember the most from that time was, and this is something I think I would love to teach every faculty member. I never felt stupid when dealing with Dr. Johnson nor Dr. Armitage mm -hmm. when I did not know how to do something. And their response wasn't like, oh my God, I can't believe you don't know how to do that. It was, I'm going to help you and we're gonna see if we can get you to where you wanna go. And I think that's important um, in mentorship in general. Um, if you are going to, to mentor others, how can you get them to a better place and make them feel better and feel more competent as opposed to feeling like they're less than worthy. So mentorship is extremely important and, and those are the two individuals in my life that just very obvious and, that, and, and quite frankly, you know, those are examples of mentors that have inspired me to hopefully become a mentor or hopefully be a mentor to, to students. And hopefully I have been um, to students over the years um, because I do think it's important. And your track record sure indicates that. I, I read the, the data of when you received your UW System Diversity Award about the number of students of color that you had mentored through undergraduate research. And by the way, Dr. Woods studies uh, he's a physiologist who studies energetics um, both during hibernation and, and during the summer months. And just tell us a little bit about your scientific work and, and your mentoring of, of students from underrepresented groups. Well, over the years, I have brought uh, many students up to the mountains to trap and study yellow-bellied marmots in, in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. Um, we have sort of 
Well, we have looked at their feeding habits. We've looked at their behavior. We've looked at their, their weight gain in preparation for hibernation. We've also had a number of students working with uh, a different species uh, of marmot called Marmota monax, better known as the woodchuck or the groundhog, depending on um, what area of the country you live. Uh, and we've brought those guys into the lab to hibernate in the lab um, and look at their energy use during hibernation. Um, it's a pretty cool animal because um, one, they're, they're very cute. <laughs> um, Two, they, they hibernate, which I just think is fascinating. A lot of people think are fascinating. And, and during their hibernation, they don't eat at all. And so we have, we have had the opportunity to sort of study their, their use of their own body fat during hibernation. Um, and I've had a lot of number of students that, it's, it's nice because I have students that like the inside. So we have lab work that we can do when we study hibernation. And then I have students that love being outside. So we can be outside um, trapping um, marmots. Um, and it's a new adventure here in North Carolina because although North Carolina has mountains, uh, it is not nearly as cold as Colorado. <laughs> and so one of the new things that I'm hoping to look into is, you know, what does hibernation look like in this state? Because they do, they're still here um, and they still hibernate. And so I can't imagine it having the same look as it uh, did in Colorado. Right. Well, we look forward to learning more. <laughs> yes. So, well, thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Woods, on this episode of The Teaching Lab. And um, for the listeners who are interested in, in obtaining Dr. Woods' contact information, um, for example, if you're interested in having him come to your campus and lead a diversity workshop for your faculty, his email address can be found in our show notes, as can the publication, his recent publication, on the impact of his STEM boot camp on underrepresented student outcomes in science majors. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for our very first episode of The Teaching Lab. I hope you've learned something new that will inform your teaching and ultimately be of benefit to your students. If you have an idea for a future show topic, please contact us at theteachinglabpodcast at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join us in two weeks when we will feature the work of another leading STEM teaching innovator.